Well, good morning. Greetings in the Master's name this morning. What, a, what an opportunity, what a privilege we've already had this morning. I was so blessed and want to, to just say amen to what the brother shared with us from the Lord this morning. And it laid such a good foundation for what I'm about to share with you. Because <clears throat> I sense two dangers with this topic. And I'm going to share just a little slice of the lives of two people, one I'm acquainted with directly, one of them indirectly, that illustrate these two dangers. The one man, his name is Noah, learned to know him about two years ago, two and a half years ago. And Noah, when I learned to know him, was having trouble in his marriage. He was making a profession, a new profession to Christianity. Um, but he was abusing his wife. He, was, he spent time in jail because of that. And over the course of the next several months, I communicated with Noah regularly, and the did the the lack of discipline that he had in his life totally and utterly destroyed everything that he had in about a year. I think sometimes we don't realize how much our lack of discipline affects our lives we would say we're not anywhere close to that. We're not doing those things. But what are the areas in your life that your spiritual life is being destroyed because of a lack of discipline? Now, there's another danger. A person I don't know directly, but I have observed and listened and viewed some of the things that they've been producing This person is extremely disciplined. Their life is well put together. They speak very carefully. One of their commitments is to never tell a lie. They give testimony to the value of Christianity. But they're not a Christian. And I've been pondering Recently, what is the difference between this man and a Christian? Well, he sees Christianity for its utility. And he takes the principles of Christianity and he applies them to his life. And by applying to them, them to his life, he has a life that's well put together. But that's not what, that's what Brother Josh was sharing with us this morning. It's not about putting your life together until you become a Christian. We will have a life full of frustration if we're trying to be a Christian that way. And he's not making any expression to, or he's not making any commitment to being a Christian. This man isn't. But if that's how we're trying to be a Christian. So if you take this topic this morning from a perspective of 
that if I discipline myself enough, then I'll be a good Christian, then you're not understanding what I'm sharing with you this morning. You can turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to begin reading at verse 1 and read through verse 17. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradictions of, sin of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastising, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have fathers of our flesh who corrected us, and, he gave, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be subject unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands that hang, which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how, how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. In verse 10 and 11, I want to point something out. Speaking of the Lord, he brings things into our lives. He brings this chastening. He brings this chastisement to his sons. His sons. Because he wants them. He desires them to be partakers of his holiness. He wants you as, as his son to partake of his holiness. Today, right now, in your life. And sometimes those things aren't pleasant. And we wish maybe sometimes that those things weren't there and that he would take them away. But after you have been exercised by those things, it brings about peaceable fruits of righteousness in your life. And so when God says, in everything give thanks, we should give thanks even when things are difficult. Because He's working in us. He wants to work in us a new creation. People who live and express peaceable fruits of righteousness in their lives. 
Now I want to move to verses 16 and 17. These verses are talking about Esau. These are familiar verses. What was it about Esau? Esau was interested in the trivial. He was interested in how he felt today. He was the kind of person who was ruled by today. That's the kind of person Esau was. We're not talking about just a single action here. We're talking about a type of person. That's the kind of person that Esau was. And when it came time for the blessing, when it came time for him to receive the blessing, he was rejected. Why? Not because of the individual things, but because he was the wrong person. He was not the right person. He had not put himself in the place where God could give him the blessing. He sought it carefully with tears, and he found no place. There was no place left in his life to turn around. He found no place of repentance because he had become so much that person that there was nowhere for him to turn around. He found no place of repentance. Though he sought it carefully with the tears, though he was sad, though he was disappointed, though he, was, he wished he could have had the blessing, he couldn't receive it because there wasn't he wasn't the type of person that God could bless. Esau had set his purpose. He had set his purpose day by day through the individual things. Through the morsel of meat, he set his purpose. Through the illicit sexual behavior, through the open ungodliness, through the casual disregard for the past and for the future. You see, that's what the blessing was about. The blessing was about the family promise that had come from the past and was to be extended into the future. And he sold that for a morsel of meat. But he found no place of repentance. And verse 15 gives us the antidote. Looking diligently. The idea of the Greek there is, is watchful carefulness. looking after, taking care of, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. It's the grace of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. I want to share four principles with you this morning for your consideration and conclude them with a fifth. The principle of truth. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Kenyan marathon runner Iliad Kipchoge was the first person to run a marathon in less than two hours. One hour, 50 minutes, and 40 seconds. He averaged just over 13 miles an hour for those nearly two hours. He said this, Only the disciplined ones are free in life. If you are undisciplined, you are a slave to your moods, you are a slave to your passions. 
Only the disciplined ones are free in life. If you are undisciplined, you are a slave to your moods. You are a slave to your passions. Truth is like the time that ticks away as he runs, as he was running. It didn't slow down so that he could get there in under two hours. You see, that's what they were trying for. This was a set-up run back in 2014 or so. It was a set-up run where runners were running in front of him to break the wind, and they had a pace car that was putting a, a light on the road to let them know how fast they had to go to get there in under two hours. But the time was ticking away at the same speed. The time wouldn't change. And truth does not change. Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And the nature of truth is that it is narrowing. Truth narrows because it eliminates everything that is false. And so everything that's out there that is false gets peeled away by the truth. And the truth narrows your life. And so if you are a person who follows the truth and who grows in the truth and is understanding of the truth, your life will be narrowed to follow the truth because every false thing will be put aside. And the truth that Jesus presented is, is far deeper than just a code of ethics. It's a freedom. It, it brings about a freedom of the soul, a freedom of the spirit, a freedom of the inner being. So that your circumstances around you, you can be in chains. You can be bound in stocks. And you can be praising the Lord like Paul and Silas were. Why? We know the end story. We know they were released the next day. Paul and Silas had no idea when they were thrown into that jail that they were going to be released the next day. And they were praising the Lord. Why? Because they were free. They knew the truth and the truth had made them free. I want you to listen to these words from Psalm 101 and listen carefully. I will behave wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. I shall not, they, it shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. My eyes shall be on the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He who works deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. We're talking about truth, and we're talking about truth narrowing your life. I will behave wisely. I will behave in a way that is corresponding with this narrowing understanding of truth that I have. When I say narrowing understanding, I'm just simply talking about the fact that the, the false things are put aside. I'm, I'm getting rid of those things out of my life, and my life is being focused I will not set my eyes on wicked things. I, I'm going to have this narrowed vision. I'm not going to look at those things that I put away. I won't set my eyes on those things. My eyes shall be on the faithful of the land. My eyes are going to be on those who are walking in front of me, those who I can see their faithfulness. 
But who was the most faithful of all? Our text there in Hebrews says, looking unto Jesus. A truth-oriented focus. I am the truth, said Jesus. And our vision, our focus, our narrowed focus is on Him and who He is. Who, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross. That brings us to the second principle. It's the principle of sacrifice. We have a little paper cut out of the lifelines many years ago on our refrigerator. And on it is a little saying by John Tillotson. What are martyrs made of? In vain does any man pretend that he will be a martyr for his religion when he will not rule his appetite, nor restrain a passion, nor cross his covetousness for the sake of it, or for the hope of eternal life which God that cannot lie hath promised. He that refuses to do the lesser is not likely to do the greater. Let me read that again. What are martyrs made of? In vain does any man pretend that he will be a martyr for his religion, when he will not rule his appetite, nor restrain a passion, nor cross his covetousness and ambition for the sake of it. And for the hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie hath promised, he that refuses to do the lesser is not likely to do the greater. Sacrifice. Sacrifice has been in human culture ever since the fall. And if you stop to think about it, sacrifice is a very strange thing. I take something that I own, something that I have in my possession, something that's valuable to me, and I send it up in smoke. For what? For what? For the future. This thing that I possess today goes up in smoke for the future. The future we have no control over the future, right? We don't know what's coming tomorrow. We don't even know if we'll be alive tomorrow. So why would I sacrifice what I have today for something that I don't know if I'm going to possess tomorrow? I'll tell you why sacrifice has been in human cultures. Because eternity is in their hearts. Because there's a sense in which we understand that we make our own tomorrows. And I hope you understand me properly when I say that. But let's think about the first sacrifice we have recorded. Cain and Abel. It's a familiar story. I'm not going to read the story itself. But Cain doesn't offer an appropriate sacrifice. And God calls him to account for, the, for that. And God tells him what is needed for his acceptance. But instead of making the necessary changes, Cain destroys the model for offering appropriate sacrifices because Abel was the one who offered the appropriate sacrifice. And so Cain destroyed that model as if somehow he could get himself free of the responsibility of the future that God had placed on him when God brought him to account. 
As if somehow having the model, having the ideal out of the way could make it easier for him to just continue on the way that he was, to continue on in wrongdoing the way he was. But instead of freeing himself, his future became destined to death. He said, and the curse is greater than I can bear. And it was, his life was overwhelmingly burdened. And when we fail, brothers, to make the appropriate sacrifice, we're headed for death. And our lives are covered with an overwhelming burden are loaded with an overwhelming burden. What's our burden? The weight of guilt that rests on our conscience because we know that what we have done leads us to death. And the way we were living, the type of person that we are, if it continues on, we're going to, it's going to lead to death. Again from Hebrews 9.14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offer himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You can be fully and completely cleansed, and the burden taken away, the burden taken off your conscience, through the blood of Jesus Christ, because of his sacrifice. And then Romans 12 one says to you, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Acceptable to God. You see, Cain needed to make an appropriate sacrifice to be accepted. And when you have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and you are a son of God, the offering of yourself to him, your body, a living sacrifice, is an acceptable offering to him. Who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. You see, there is something beyond that sacrifice. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. But Jesus chose the cross. The cross wasn't forced on Jesus. Jesus chose the cross. And he is the author, back to our passage in Hebrews, he's the author of our faith. When we talk about faith, we're talking about faith in Christ. We're talking about seeing the world the way he does. And he chose the cross. He chose the endurance and the sacrifice for the joy of the future. Will you choose the appropriate sacrifice? Which brings us to the third principle, the principle of choice. Lord Ockton, 1834 to 1902, a historian during the Victorian period, the theme of his history, work on history, was the history of liberty. And he wrote this, Liberty is not the power of doing what we like, but the right of being able to do what we ought. You see, through the sacrifice of Christ, we are given liberty. Liberty to do what we ought, not to do what we like. But embedded in that quote 
is the idea that we must choose to do what's right. Because a society that has the right to do what's right and doesn't do it is not a free society. And we, neither will we be free if we have the right to do what's right and we don't do it. And so, brothers, the only way for us as individuals and for our churches to be free is for us to live as we ought. We've been given the right. We've been given what we need. But we must choose. Have you ever wondered why the tree of knowledge was in the Garden of Eden? I have. But let me read you a little bit from the book of Genesis. Genesis 2, 8. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, where he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree to grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. I'm going to stop there. In the garden of Eden, God planted every tree that was pleasant to look at and good for food. There was every possibility of good fruit visually and to the taste buds in the Garden of Eden. That's separate from the tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So we have all these trees that have all the capacity for, for visual blessing and for the blessing of taste in the garden. And in the center of the garden, we have two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree, those trees being in the center of the garden is the idea of them being in the center of where God placed them. The center of God's will. And the center of where God placed them was the tree of knowledge and the tree of life. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so right there in the center of, of God, what God, where God created man to be, was life and death. Right there. Right in the center. And he said, you have a choice to make about life and death. Right here. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, this is 3.6. When the, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Now they had all these trees around them that were pleasant to the sight and good for food. But when she saw this tree, she ate. You see, the most important thing about being in the garden was not about Adam and Eve having their desires fulfilled. Their desires were fulfilled, 
But the most important thing about their life and about who they were was not about having their desires fulfilled. The most important thing was about them maintaining a connection with their creator. And they had all these trees around them. And every time they looked at that one tree, what did they think about? God. This one tree that they couldn't eat of, God. God has said it. And right beside it was the tree of life that they had access to. Brothers, in the restriction of our desire is life. Not, life is not, sorry, I didn't say that properly. In the restriction of our desire, we see the source of the fulfillment of our desires. In the restriction of our desires, we look to the source of our desires and the fulfillment of them. God has created us with desires, and those desires are not evil in themselves. But we have choices to make about those desires in relation to how they will be fulfilled. Will they be fulfilled in a way that is pleasing to God and brings glory to Him, or will they be fulfilled in a way that pleases me? And you say, well, why take the chance of eternal destruction? But then you lose the chance for love. We have a choice because we have a choice to love God and we have a choice not to love God. And you have to choose which it's going to be for you. When Jesus chose the cross, he chose it because it was the center of God's will for him. Because he knew that the Father was going to take him from that point on beyond to the joy that was set before him. You, brothers, are not going to find the answer to the longing of your soul through the fulfilling of your desires. You'll find it in meeting the creator of your desires. And in that, you will find rest. And so rest for your life is found in the discipline of your desires. That brings us to the principle of rest. And for this one, I have a quote from our master, the Lord Jesus. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now reading from Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Because in it he rested from all the work which he had created and made. On the seventh day he rested. Now we know, because we know the nature of God, that God did not need to rest for himself. And we know from what Jesus said that the Sabbath was made for man. 
And if you follow the idea of rest down through the scriptures, you can see that man in his, in his struggle of life is always looking for rest. He's always wanting to come to rest. He's always wanting to find that rest. God is the source of rest. In the Old Testament, as we look at Israel drawing near to God, then he gave them rest. He gave them rest on every side from their enemies. But that's only true when they focused on him. When they went to the source of rest... And our passage in Hebrew said, looking unto Jesus, he's the source of our rest. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now how can those go together? How can a yoke and rest go together? How can we carry something? How can we carry a burden how can we pull a load and be at rest? Because when we're in Christ, we are free. We are free in our soul. We are at rest. We are at peace. And what it means to follow Him is not a burden. We carry it, but we carry it with joy. Because we have found rest then we have believed to enter into rest. Hebrews 4. And there remaineth a rest for the people of God. And so we believe that we, we know that we've entered into rest, but we also know that on beyond, there is a rest for the people of God. A complete rest, a full rest. The principle of truth, the principle of sacrifice, the principle of choice, the principle of rest. All of these have a common theme, each one of these principles. And it's the example, the person of Jesus. Looking at him. Gazing at him. As I prepared for this, I thought a little bit like Brother Josh did when he began the first, uh, the first message. You know, sometimes we come to these things and we just wish we had a list to check off and say, if I can do these things, it's the disciplined life. It's the godly life. Well, I'm going to give you a three-step plan. Luke 9, 23. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, number one, let him deny himself. Number two, and take up his cross daily. Number three, and follow me. A three-step plan to a disciplined life. For whosoever will save his life will lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. Do you believe that if you lose your life for Christ, that you'll save it? That is a principle of faith. Amen. 
Look diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God. What are we living by? Are we living by faith or are we living by sight? Faith in Jesus Christ is not a life that's lived by what I can see. It's a life that's lived by what Jesus said is true. And I follow it. And I do it. Jesus made that statement, those three things, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He made that statement without, and it was on the basis of his own suffering and death. What does it mean for you to fulfill those three steps? It means you're going to have to look diligently. That's what it means. You have to look, you, you have to look diligently. No one can do it for you. You have to look diligently at the face and the person of Jesus Christ. And when you do that, the grace of God comes in and transforms you. And you live a disciplined life. May God, may God give us the grace to live disciplined lives as men in his kingdom.